This is Maya Thomas. I am the DSC podcast producer, and I just wanted to give you a quick rundown of DSC as an organisation before we get started. DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. Our focus is on helping providers to survive and thrive in the NDIS, and our purpose is better outcomes for people with disability. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you are ready because we're starting. Welcome to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. Our guest in the studio today is Luke Bosher. Hi Luke. Hi Evian Rowland. And our theme is? True Believer. It'll become obvious while we pick that theme as we go. We're really excited to have Luke in, in the studio with us because he's got so much to tell us. And basically, I met Luke in 2012. He was fresh out of Prime Minister and Cabinet working for Faxia. And that both those um, gigs at Prime Minister and Cabinet and Faxia had been on scheme design. And Luke will talk a bit about that. From there, he moved on to be one of the founders of DSC, one of the four founding members, which was you, Evie, me, Luke and Vanessa Toy. And um, to my chagrin, um, Summer poached him from working with DSC to become CEO of the Summer Foundation, which is where he's at now. So we're excited to have you here, Luke. I'm very excited to be here. I feel very privileged to be on the podcast after such a stellar lineup of people over the last couple of months that are all NDIS and disability superstars. So it was a bit intimidating to come onto the podcast after <laughs> such a good lineup. Yeah, and I think we're two of your biggest fans, Luke, even though we've worked together so much. And one of the things we've always really loved about you, Luke, is that you combine, and it's a real, really unusual passion with technical detail, and we don't see that a lot. You know, often the passionate people are big thinkers, and I don't do detail, but Luke does mm-hmm. both. And we were so excited to, you know, be able to work with someone who knew some of the detail, but still was passionate about it, and hence the true believer, and, and we'll talk a, a bit about that as we go. So you worked in Prime Minister and Cabinet, you worked on design at Faxia, and now you're still um, intrinsically involved with the NDIS. Are you still a true believer? I am still a true believer. I think the fundamentals of the scheme are absolutely right, and it's about getting the implementation right. So I've been a true believer for a long time, and I'm still a, still a true believer. And you know, in my current role at Summer Foundation, we see sometimes where the scheme isn't working well, but we also see other times where the scheme's delivering people amazing outcomes that were never possible prior to the NDIS. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's when I see those examples of where the scheme works really well to give people really genuine choice, live in high-quality housing with the support they need, um, and that's really transformational for people's lives. So that keeps me, keeps me a true believer. And sometimes we forget the good news stories because there's a lot of good news stories out there because we tend to see the pointy and the bad news stories, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Luke, you worked in Prime Minister and Cabinet. Did you get to meet the Prime Minister? I did get to meet the Prime Minister. At the time, Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister and was really closely involved in the negotiation of the scheme with the states uh, and the design of the scheme. So, yeah, there were lots of opportunities to um, meet the PM and, and work through a lot of the detail around the NDIS. Well. And if you had your chance again to work in Prime Minister and Cabinet, I often imagine uh, you in that space again. What would you say to the Prime Minister now if you could travel back in time and you had that, you know, the five, seven years under your belt? What would you, one piece of advice for the Prime Minister? 
<laughs> Seems a bit gratuitous to give a piece of advice to the Prime Minister. Um, <laughs> if I was giving one piece of advice, it would be that when we designed the scheme, we always knew that a lot of things were being tested. You know, we had the launch sites, which became the trial sites. You know, they were all about kind of testing how the scheme would work. And I think one of the things that's really difficult for government is once you've decided to do something a particular way or you've agreed to something, the threshold for changing that is really high. So the idea of, you know, how we came up with the mainstream interface or how we designed a single national agency, those things were always agreements with the states that were going to be reviewed, people would come back, we'd make sure that all those things were working correctly. Everything wasn't setting a precedent. But when it comes down to it, you know, it was a precedent because it's become really difficult to change some of the parts of the scheme. Yeah, that's right. So making changes is much more difficult than we anticipate. And so I think if I had one piece of advice, it would be to think about the fact that we might all be sitting in a room saying, we're just trialing something, you know, it doesn't set a precedent. If it's not working, we'll come back and change it. But actually coming back and changing things is really tricky in in government. And I think a lot of people in the sector would argue that they're experiencing too much change as is, right? Mm. Even though some of those changes are really positive, they're fixing things that that were broken, uh, there's a lot of resistance to it. I was thinking about this in respect to local area coordination. And so, Surely that's been a bit of an experiment in the way we've rolled out local area coordination, but we've given tens of millions of dollars in contracts to organisations. They've got staffing, they've got offices, they've got all this infrastructure built around it now. There's a whole industry now dependent on that model of local area coordination. So you can imagine the lobby if we try to change it to something that is different. And so the the system built itself, doesn't it, pretty quickly and um, inertia hits pretty quickly. Mm. Things stay the same very much so. I often talk about the NDIS in public forums and someone at the back will sometimes say at the end of it, well, well, how would you fix it? And it's like, oh, shit, you know, I really hate that question because there's no easy answer, is there? And if I had the opportunity, I'd slow it down. But I know in 2012 in Prime Minister and Cabinet, they didn't want to slow it down. They wanted something they could take to the election. And so there wasn't the opportunity to heed that advice anyway. And I'm pretty sure Faxia was giving the Prime Minister that advice. So that comment about slowing down the scheme is something that a lot of people would say that part of the reason we're having or we've had some of the problems that the scheme's had is because it got rolled out too quickly. I think it's important, though, also to think about, well, what would have happened if we had another year of time to plan for the scheme? And having worked as, you know, one of the bureaucrats in in designing the scheme, what we're talking about when we're talking about slowing it down is kind of another six months or another 12 months of a whole bunch of public servants sitting in, you know, a relative kind of ivory tower trying to design in theory how an NDIS would work. And my view on on the speed of the rollout is that we learnt way more in the first month of actually delivering the scheme, meeting with participants, doing planning. I think we learnt way more in 12, uh, sorry, in one month than we would have learnt and we would have been able to work out from a whole 12 months of people sitting there in theory, how is this scheme mm. going to work? Because yeah. so many of the, the issues that come up, so many of the problems that have arisen, they're really hard to foresee unless you're actually out there at the coalface with participants. So, like, I get why people talk about wanting to slow it down, but I think the idea of, you know, learning while you're doing, yeah, yeah. I think is much more effective in the NDIS than a whole bunch of people sitting around before we even had an agency trying to whiteboard things and and work them out conceptually and not wanting to get too technical because it's not that much fun but the bilaterals don't allow you a lot of wiggle room do they you set up contracts with the states between the federal government and the states which are the bilateral agreements and once they were locked down the wiggle room was gone wasn't it 
Yeah, the the wiggle room in the speed of the rollout was locked in yeah. in um, in the bilaterals. But we had three whole years of launch sites. Like that was a long time to kind of work out all of these problems. So um, yeah, I, I think three years is a, a long enough time to be able to understand what those problems are and be ready for that transition period. Yeah, if we've been able to do that. Except yeah. that we added LACs with the in 2016 with the actual rollout. That wasn't a trial site, as in the planning LACs. So explain that a bit, Evie. Well, th- like I would say, one of the biggest problems with the NDIS's implementation has been giving LACs the role of planning. And that was a decision that was made in 2016 when we had the first LACs to get the planning role formally was in northeast Melbourne, which was in 2016. It wasn't a trial site at all. So in that sense, I think one of the biggest issues is one of the ones that wasn't tested. We were involved in that tender. so And we all fell off our perches when we first read the contract documents, which had planning as the key focus of LAC because local area coordination was never meant to be that function. I could be wrong though. I kind of remember um, people in Geelong talk about plaques for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, planning LACs. Yeah, there was a little bit of that in the trial site. Coming back to the true believer theme, Luke, you you have got a career based on passion and purpose and we know you well enough to know that that's genuine. There must be times when you felt pretty disillusioned, you know, sometimes in the dark of night, it's been a difficult week, month in, in what's being done. How do you stay fresh? Because you come across as a person that's committed to staying um, fresh and positive. Uh, for me, like I think that resilience point is so important in in the NDIS. Um, it's important for me. I know it's important for a lot of people that I work with, and I know a lot of the DSC team. It's it's important as well. Um, for me, it, it is about focusing on the things that are going well. And I think I would find it really tough to work in a space where. 100% of what I saw was things not going well. Yeah. And so at Summer Foundation, we um, work a lot with people in aged care and people in hospital settings. And most people in aged care are there because the existing systems haven't worked to support them to stay in the community or come back to the community after um, they acquire their disability. And so there is a lot of you know examples of where the systems aren't working, but there's also enough examples of where things are working. And when they work, people get a really transformational outcome. So for me, it's about seeing that um, and being able to really be very close to those examples in practice about where things are working well. It's also about the people you surround yourself with, though. And I know that there's a lot of people doing it really tough in the NDIS. Yeah, yeah. But if your entire network are people that are doing it tough... I think that makes it very hard. I would find that very hard to continue to be resilient. So I try and surround myself with a mix of people. Some people that are, you know, really positive and, and doing good work that's getting a lot of traction, but also people that are really struggling and finding it really hard to navigate their way through. And I think that balance of who's in your network and who you spend time with is really important. Yep, yep, yep. Because you don't want to go off on a, you know, you don't want to surround yourself with only people that are having a good experience in the NDIS because then you end up with this really false sense of positivity um, and can end up a bit blinkered to where the, the challenges are in the scheme. But equally, if you just surround yourself with people that are doing it tough and finding it really hard to navigate their way through, um, I think I would find it very hard to stay positive yeah. I'm um, I'm co-hosting the Support Coordination National Summit on 24 June. By the time this episode comes out, it, it will have passed. Yeah. But um, it was it, the the whole theme of the summit for support coordinators. It was sort of tapping into the idea of resilience that we see a lot of support coordinators really struggling to um, to be resilient in the face of a lot of conflict, a lot of difficulty. So we wanted to have the theme be about celebrating and learning. So we're getting all these great stories of people who are doing interesting, innovative things with their funding, and then someone sent through an email with 
with the story she wanted to share about working with people with a life-limiting illness. And my first ins- my first response was like, oh, that sounds really difficult. That's like not celebrate and learn and fun, but like we'd be doing such a disservice to the work that support coordinators do to leave that like darker, harder side out of it. So it's, it's going to be featured in the summit. I'm quite excited to see how it goes, but it's, it's kind of holding that tension of the, you know, trying to stay positive, look at best practice, um, look at the things that are going really right. And at the same time, keeping in mind that there are still some really difficult parts of those roles. And we talked to Rod Harris in a podcast that's still to be released. That'll be out pretty soon, but he worked in the CEO of motor neuron disease for over 20 years and dealing with a lot of sudden onset disability that leads fairly quickly to death. And there was a lot of positivity in that EV. There was a lot of resilience. The theme, yeah. the theme could easily have been resilience and how people make the most of their lives when they're challenged. Yeah. So I want to ask you, Evie, too, because you hit a low spot a year or so ago where it was just, maybe it was 18 months ago, where it was just all shit and corruption. I hit that spot every week after I run workshops. Yeah. <laughs> it's called the dark place. But you found a couple of ways of pulling yourself out. Do you remember? No, do you? Yeah, you, um, you'd you seen a podcast that was really inspirational. Oh, that's right. Oh, no, I do remember what you're talking about now. Yeah. I'd gone through running a series of, of workshops and um, with support coordinators and, again, just, like, re- uh, just seeing so much resistance internally of people who were just so sick and tired of the NDIS and had sort of given up on getting good outcomes and I was just starting to feel really... Um, you know, cynical about it all. And then I listened to this podcast that was talking about headwinds and tailwinds. Yeah, yeah. And it was saying that we, we noticed the, the headwinds. No, no, what's it called? Is it a headwind? Yeah, yeah. It was saying that we noticed the headwinds so much more than the tailwinds. Like when you're riding your bike, you just think to yourself like, oh, I can't wait for this wind to be behind my back. But then as soon as it is, you forget and you take it for granted. And so that was really helpful for me to think about that we recognize and we see the resistance a lot more than the things that are on our tailwinds and taking the time to think about all the things that are on our tailwinds. It's cool. So, look back to the true believer, and I'll keep pulling us back to it. I'm old enough to remember the public service when it was a, a, a permanent tenure. People went there because they it was a concept of real public service, and it got politicised decades ago. It's gone through all kinds of machinations, but you strike me, you've always struck me as the quintessential public servant. And I mean that in a really positive, an archetype of what we'd want a public servant to be. <laughs> Don't be offended. Yeah. No, no, it's a really positive statement. Can, can you, we're talking to my youngest, my second youngest daughter, Elise, about potentially going into the public service. And I always get her to talk to you about that sort of stuff. But where do you see public service in 2019? Is it is it real? Are there people there that are trying to make a difference? Um, is it too big a question? I think there's absolutely people there that are trying to make a difference. I think there's a lot of very passionate, really smart people working in the public service. Um, I think for me, one of the really important characteristics of good public servants and a good public service is the understanding of what happens outside the public service as well as what happens inside the public service. And I think that's something that Um, the public service isn't particularly great at. I think there's great pathways if you start, you know, as a graduate in the public service and work your way up. But it's also, it can be also quite an insular institution in public service. I think there's a strong bias towards recognising and rewarding um, people based on their public service achievements. But I really, I think it's... um, not as sophisticated in the public service about how to recognise and 
transfer in people from the not-for-profit sector and from the private sector and from academia who have really useful skills and experience and talents that could benefit the public service. So for me, a really important characteristic is the ability to move out from being in the public service to being in the not-for-profit sector, Come back coming again. back, going to the private sector, coming back. I think like that transferability between mm. working in government and working outside of government is really is really important and we don't do that enough. And so that's been something that's always been important to me. So I started my career pre-public service working in the not-for-profit sector. I worked for a community sector peak body yep. uh, in the ACT. I also worked in disability service delivery and supported a com. Um, for kids and uh, young adults with very significant um, acquired disability in the care and protection system. And so kind of came into government with a very strong sense of what it's actually like out there in the social services sector as a frontline worker, but also in a kind of community sector peak policy role. And I found that really invaluable in government to be able to translate back to what's actually happening on the front line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's follow that train of thought and follow your career for for a moment from... Those roles you went to Prime Minister and Cabinet and Faxia on design of the scheme, and then you disappeared for about six months. I, you know, I hadn't. Where was Luke? There was, there was this good guy that answered questions, and I couldn't find him anymore. And then I got an email from New York, and Luke's on a, a Fulbright scholarship. So, do you want to tell us what that Fulbright was about, and then we could talk a bit about what the email was about as well? So, I'd been working on the NDIS for. What felt like a really long time. In practice, it probably wasn't all that long, but it felt like an eternity. And so I'd been at PMNC, Faxia, and then I worked at the agency during the start of the the launch sites. Uh, And for me, I kind of got to the point where I needed a bit of space away from the NDIS and a bit of a, um, a bit of space away from Canberra. I'd lived in Canberra for over a decade and it was time to get out of living in Canberra. Um, So decided that I wanted to, you know, have a bit of a, an ability to reflect and, and think about things a little bit more after a really hectic couple of years on, on the NDIS. So I was um, incredibly fortunate to have got a Fulbright scholarship to be able to go over to the US and spend two years uh, there studying. And I went to New York University to NYU with a focus on affordable housing and uh, kind of social investment and pay for success. Mm. So how we can focus more on outcomes in government and pay based on outcomes rather than just based on outputs. And Fulbright's a big deal. It's a hooly dooly big deal. So congratulations <laughs> on that. But. <laughs> Thank you. And it's a it's an amazing group of people that get Fulbright scholarships. So um, it was great to be able to connect with people from not just Australia, but all over the world that had got a Fulbright scholarship and were really passionate about um not just social policy, but a whole range of different areas. So another quick tangent, because part of a power couple, Kate, who you're, um, who's your partner now, and you're living in Northcote, but Kate was doing pretty amazing stuff too. So quick one for Kate. <laughs> well, so we were both over there uh, together, but slightly separate. So uh, I was in New York at NYU. Kate was at um, at Harvard at the Kennedy School. It just um, rolls off the tongue, Harvard. I was expecting to say she was in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting because we both had these kind of quite different, you know, universities in the US have quite different characters, maybe more so than here. So New York is a very socially progressive um, university. The public policy school is very filled with activists, people that are really um, wanting to change how how things work, very keen on grassroots organising and grassroots advocacy work, um, and very focused on a local government level in the US. Uh, whereas Harvard is is quite different. It's um, a lot of people that have come out of a more traditional public sector background. Um, it's more focused at national kind of issues. So we had this really fantastic combination of um, friendship groups in in New York, a very kind of progressive activist kind of friendship group, and and 
uh, up in in Boston at Harvard, um, much more of a, a traditional but really challenging kind of intellectually challenging group of friends. Great people to bring to a dinner party, I can tell you that. So the email. Yeah. Do you remember the email? Because I do. Yeah, I think I was sitting around in New York and thinking, I've enjoyed six months of a break. I've really enjoyed, you know, moving to New York. I've enjoyed studying and I'm really getting into that. But I also felt like I had all this um, experience and knowledge on NDIS and it felt to me like it was a bit wasted kind of sitting in the US and, um, and not contributing back. So I was keen to think about how do I continue to contribute in a way that would provide kind of benefit to people back in Australia, um, but in a way that might work while I'm kind of overseas. Yeah. So Luke, Luke wrote to me and said, you know, is there any possibility I'd be able to work from New York um, with DSC? And it was like, hell yeah, but I have no idea how. And at the same time, do you want to tell the your foundation story about um, the boy and the 5,000 bucks? <laughs> and the... So before I was working with DSC, I was, um, uh, I was, working for an American multinational in Brussels and I decided to move home and as you do two weeks before I left I fell in love um, and so I came back home and then was like right I'm gonna leave again right away but I need some money dad will you please <laughs> uh, fund me to go back and follow this adventure and in the end we struck a deal that I would build DSC's website um, and so that was my beginning with DSC and, and I kind of got sucked into it from there because we started with the resource hub part of the process of developing the website was like oh the the website we're building's got this functionality to write articles and you were really keen to have a newsletter and so we just started sharing newsletters and I think it's not unfair to say that Luke's articles um paved the way Luke at the time was writing articles incredibly detailed articles about housing policy that really laid the foundation for DSC's reputation now as being people who know what they're talking about and yesterday you and I were reflecting would DSC have been a success without Luke because we we see you as the the foundation model for the, the, the business we now run, which is all subject matter specializations. Mm-hmm. And so Luke brought passion and purpose and gave us great detail about SDA, the special disability accommodation, specialist disability accommodation, and also breaking news. You did that thing of, you know, here's some news, here's some news. And it made our newsletter really popular really quickly. And it showed that if you had the technical expertise, but also gave a shit, which you do, um, that people would want to listen. And so you developed a following and then we started running these workshops. (laughs) (laughs) And the workshops took years off my life, Luke, because we would video conference you in and the technology would always break down. And I didn't have the technical expertise to stand up and, and, and fill in the bits when Luke was broken down. And so we'd have this big screen. We had big audiences. We had 100, 150 people in the room. Mm-hmm. And every time Luke paused, it just didn't move his face, I'd freak out and think, it's frozen again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we ended up flying you into Melbourne rather than um, keep that stress going a couple of times and brought you over. Yeah. So Luke worked two days a week. So our, our business, DSC, began for people that are interested with Evie working in Belgium on a, paying off 5000 bucks to a dad and building the website, which you see now. So um, it's <laughs> had a few iterations but that's still Evie's work the look and feel with Luke doing here's what subject matter specialization looks like here's what passion and purpose looks like here's the occasional breaking news and Vanessa and I are running this series of workshops all around Australia and occasionally video conferencing you in for the more successful ones one of the things that used to piss us off the most was at the end of the day of the workshop, yeah. people would say, we really loved Luke. And it's like, come on, you know, the guy was on a video conference for an hour. We've done all this face-to-face stuff and you're all telling us you love Luke. So anyway, that was the original genesis of um, DSC and it's still very much who we are. And so 
about a year and a half ago, we said, let's break the business down into all those subject matter specializations of SIL and SDA and support, support coordination, coordination, planning, and, marketing, strategic planning. So 14 different. And then said, and let's all be like Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're doing it. I feel yeah. like there was also a time in, maybe it was at the end of the end of 2013 or maybe the end of 2014, where we sat down face to face in Melbourne and yeah, had a yeah. bit of a DSC mm-hmm. planning day. And it was... Roland and Evie and Vanessa and me. Yeah. And I feel like I remember that conversation where you and um, Roland and Vanessa were kind of saying, oh, I think we're, we don't want to manage people anymore. We don't want to have to be responsible for anyone. We're very happy with just the four of us, you know, like <laughs> in New York, yeah. maybe doing some part-time work. Let's not grow. <laughs> Let's not grow. And I feel like we came away from that those couple of days being like, yeah, you know, we're not going to grow. We're just going to keep doing the thing we're doing. Yeah. And then six months later, I think you had a team of like 15 subject matter <laughs> specialists. Yeah, we still do that. We still say we're not going to grow and it keeps growing. So, yeah. yeah we're, but we're, I think it speaks to the demand that um, – that a whole range of people have, and including service providers, but not just service providers. You know, you've done work for government, you've done work for local area coordinators, for a whole bunch of different people. I think it comes from that demand from people that want um, to work with consultants that yeah. um, that not only are passionate and not only are technical experts, but also have a vision for how things can change in the NDIS and and what kind of benefits we can get for people with disability out of the scheme. Beautiful work, thank you. <laughs> so that loops us back to. Um, your, your work in SDA, so you wrote the original um, Specialist Di- Disability Accommodation Policy before it was called that, and have followed it ever since as CEO of some foundation that's it's your bread and butter. Do you want to tell us a bit about where you, what, what we've lost and what, what we need to do? Mm. Yeah, well, so from my perspective, it's been a really fascinating journey because one of the things you often don't get to do um, in government or outside of government is go from an idea... Um, all the way through to that idea being fleshed yeah, out, yeah, yeah. becoming legislation, mm-hmm. and then kind Mr. Of, operational. Yeah, and then becoming operational. And and so it's been a real privilege for me to be able to see something go from um, a kind of idea or you know a couple of paragraphs in a productivity commission report through to something that you know as of a couple of months ago we did a survey of providers and found over one and a half thousand new specialist disability accommodation places under construction across the country and i would wager it's probably more More like two thousand um as of now and so that's an extraordinary thing i think that the scheme's been able to create is you know two thousand new housing places many of which are really high quality really well located housing places for people with disability to move into yeah um and i think that's an extraordinary thing and i think it's one of the things that government finds really hard to explain about the scheme because everything's so individualized in the scheme it's really challenging for government to be able to have a narrative with the public that says the extra money we're spending on the ndis you know the extra focus we're having on this as a government is leading to these kinds of results because it's really kind of you know it's a market it is genuinely a market out there and i think government finds it hard to tell a narrative about what's happening in the marketplace uh but i think it's a great success story um or it's the foundations of a great success story in SDA. So, so I have a question for you that I think a lot of our listeners will have, which is about the future of people being allowed to live alone mm-hmm. in NDIS, because I think there's a big disconnect between what the policy would have said and the principles of it all and then what we're actually seeing happen in practice. Can you say anything more about that? Yeah. Well, I can talk about our experience at Summer Foundation. So um, some people listening to the podcast might know that Summer Foundation um, prototyped some really accessible apartments for people with disability that were one person per apartment that were salt and peppered throughout an apartment building and that we prototyped that in Abbotsford with the TAC 
Uh, we prototyped that. We scaled that up to 10 apartments in, in the Hunter in the trial site in a larger apartment building where they were again salt and peppered. And that was all, it's always been based on people living by themselves. Not because that is, we don't have a view that everyone should live by themselves, but we certainly met a lot of people in aged care who didn't want to live in a shared group home setting and that wasn't appropriate for them. And so aged care became one of the only other options that they had. So for us, it spoke to a gap in the market of something people with disability wanted but weren't able to access. Uh, so we prototyped that and we've worked with a lot of providers in the market to replicate and scale that up. So uh, a lot of, you know, the, a lot of the construction of new places that are in the pipeline are single resident properties. So mm-hmm. um, more than 400 of the places currently under construction are for single resident occupants in an apartment setting. So certainly on the the market on the supply side, there's a lot of interest in scaling that up. There were challenges with the NDIA's messaging about whether people would be able to live alone, but we've worked really closely with the NDIA over the last 12 months since that came out and um, worked really closely with them on the evidence base about what living alone means in terms of people being more independent, having a lower lifetime support cost, and using data from the Transport Accident Commission and other projects that we've been involved in, um, you know, have really explained to NDIA why it is that we're promoting this model and, and what we think it achieves. And that's been really successful. So over the last uh, six months or so, we've supported 70 people with disability in the scheme to get funded to live alone um, with single resident SDA payments and a support model that's individualized to them. And to me, that kind of speaks to the results of, you know, the NDIA on the ground, uh, yeah. allowing people to live alone. That's fantastic. That's well, I think that leads us into, let's talk about the Summer Foundation because kudos to Di Winkler for setting up the Summer Foundation. I often think it, it's it's a high point in our society because from my point of view, what the Summer Foundation does is develop really innovative, interesting uh, market-based products and then gives away the intellectual property, gives away the information. So do you want to tell us what what Summer's doing? And yep. Yeah. Well, what, that was something that really attracted me to Summer Foundation was an organisation that wasn't about um, furthering its own growth, yeah. but was about um, supporting other organisations to grow and improve the quality of what they do. Uh, so Summer Foundation has this, a particular focus on younger people in residential aged care. So we kind of talk about it in terms of NDIS participants who are in aged care or NDIS participants who are stuck in hospital. And our work you know, means that we work with a much bigger group than that, but that's our really core focus. So our vision is that over the next um, three years that we could halve the number of young people that are in aged care across the country. And uh, earlier this year, the government brought out an action plan on young people in aged care that also had a similar target about halving the number of young people in aged care uh, over the next few years. So, the, and this is the other thing that I really liked about Summer Foundation before I joined was this focus on a really clear, measurable goal. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I really struggle with is, you know, where there's an unattainable goal that, you know, this kind of goes to the resilience question. Yeah, yeah. If you've got an unattainable goal, it always feels like you're so far away from achieving it. Nice. Whereas we can kind of measure year by year how many fewer young people are going into aged care. I think that's a really motivating thing mm-hmm. for people in the organisation because it keeps you really focused on what you're here to do and you can kind of check in on your progress quite regularly and there's a pathway to achieving that goal of stopping young people going into aged care altogether. Yep. So within the organisation, we do a mix. We do... Great website. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, some of the best resources in the sector. 
Yeah, so developing resources, something that a lot of people would know us for. Uh, we do quite a lot of policy advocacy work, so working with government about the scheme design, but also about hospital issues, health issues, housing policy. Uh, we do research uh, and trying to build the evidence base, and we also run some prototypes. So some people might have seen the Housing Hub website, uh, which lists disability accessible accommodation vacancies across the country. I want you to, if it's okay, Luke, put a policy hat back on and help Evie and I with the discussion we we're having the other day. So I rang you last week, Evie, from a, a conference I was at, and basically people were talking about thin markets, which I think is a euphemism for market failure in, in Australia, where rural and remote people and cold people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and a bunch of other sector, subsectors and cohorts aren't able to get the services they need in a market-based outcome or a market-based delivery. So I ring up Evie basically from, you know, conference lunchtime and say, where, where, I want to write this article and the article is where there's no market, we should be block funding. We should have always thought about block funding into the no market situation, rural and remote, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And your response, Evie, was? Uh, that that would be, that would be, uh, what was my response? It's always no. Well, yeah, so I always start with no when it's your idea. Um, but I think the reason I was saying no this time was that it would be taking the opportunity away from people. That, that, that we kind of have to, I, in some ways, I totally agree that there are great options to block fund. But I think I felt, I thought that it was taking people's rights away. And also you spoke about some of the, corny language, but green shoots, we're starting to see, you talked about a service in Melbourne. That- oh, that's right. Yeah, I was saying that um, it, it takes away the p- potential for, for one-to-one solutions, and that's the stuff that's quite exciting. It's quite labour-intensive to create, but like rather than having a block-funded day service in a regional area, fund the people in that regional area for extensive support coordination so they can find those opportunities to you know, be working at the nursery three days a week or in the library or whatever it might be within the community. So the funding's going to the community. It's more inclusive it's more individual it takes a lot more time to set up but you also gave the example in melbourne about where service that's setting up in the niches where people aren't providing services yeah like there's a there's a service that's set up in melbourne that's designed specifically for nighttime shifts or for last minute shifts so there's all these markets where um Nobody wants to go yet because the incentives are still wrong because the metro providers still have more than enough participants than they've got the um the workers to fill the capacity for so at the moment, we're not seeing anybody move out there, but I just think it, maybe it takes time. It takes more workforce investment. I'm, so where do you sit, Luke, on the market versus block-funded thin market market value? I think I sit on the EV end of this spectrum. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think ultimately it's about do we think that governments can make better choices than people with disability about where to get Ooh. their supports from, right? Because this is ultimately <laughs> yeah. about if if – if government's not going to put any more money on the table, like if we're saying that block funding isn't about increasing the amount of money, it's just about a different commissioning process, I think it has to come back to the idea that we think governments are going to be better able to um, to um, make choices about what services are available for people with disability themselves. Um, so, but I think that what we lack are structures to be able to bring people with disability together to jointly purchase services. And I think this is yeah. my kind of maybe my qualification on Evie's support coordination comment is, you know, when, when I think about our core business, people, young people in aged care, you know, if we went up to the Goulburn region in Victoria, for example, and found, you know, 20 young people in aged care that wanted to leave, the current model is all 20 of those people will have 
their own individual support coordinator. You know, we'll find 20 young people、mm-hmm. in aged care all wanting to move out to towns across the Goulburn Mallee area. They'll all have chosen an individual support coordinator. They'll be individually picking up the phone and calling a whole host of different housing providers. Like, that's not a sensible way、yeah. to engage with a housing yeah, market. Yeah. Like, what we need are ways to be able to bring people together. So that, you know, 10 of those 20 people in aged care who want to leave can connect with each other and talk to each other about this is what I want. This is what I want. Come up with a brief for housing providers that say, you know, the 10 of us want these 10 different properties to be built. Who in the housing market will do that for us? Well, you、yeah. know, who should have been doing that role is local area coordinators. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a classic. Local area would have been a classic, classic role. Classic role for local area coordinators. But it's not happening. They don't have the capacity because they're too busy planning. So, and I think that, and there's also an expertise question in there as well. Like,、yeah, yeah. did we choose local area coordinators on their ability to be really good market intermediaries, or did we choose them on some other characteristics? And I don't recall that market aggregation and being a market intermediary was a real feature. You know, I think if you go back to the Productivity Commission report, that was what the disability service organization, the DSO model was all about,、yeah. was providing that ability for people to use their package, implement their package. And I think that's been translated in part into support coordination in a really choice based model, which is、mm. great. But I think we, we don't have ways for support coordinators to work together. And we don't really have ways for people with disability to choose the right support coordinator for their outcome. So I think there's a lot of work to do to fix that piece. And I reckon that's a better way to fix the thin markets problem than for、uh, some. Bureaucrat in Canberra to decide what organization should be providing a day program in, in what town. So he's good.、Yeah. This is why people liked watching him on the video conference, even when it was stressful. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's interesting. I remember, I actually remember where you were. So I remember, Luke, when you first came back from the Fulbright Scholarship, and it was, it was early 2016, and you wrote an article for us on the failure to innovate. So do you remember what was in that article? Can you tell us what the failure to innovate was about? Well, I remember why we wrote the article because we were really disappointed at the time, I think, at DSC that we weren't seeing more really amazing,、yeah. innovative things happening in the market. And、in、for 2016. most people in 2016.、Yeah. And at the time, if you said to people, you know, tell us 10 innovative things,、um, people would really struggle to count beyond the first, you know, beyond their first hand of, of fingers to be able to come up with innovative things happening. And I don't know that we're in that much of a different space three no, years we, on we from、agree. doing that.、Yep. So, what were the barriers that we talked about at the time that, that are still relevant? So,、um, the NDIS is really focused on paying for hours of service delivery、yep. rather than paying for an outcome.、And、I think that's one of the biggest challenges here is that organizations、um, want to be achieving outcomes for participants. And from a public policy sense, we all want to focus on outcomes. And yet, the scheme works by funding individual hours of activity. Yeah, that's really important. So, I think what we need to do is move more towards paying for the outcome of supporting someone to leave home or leave hospital rather than paying for an hour of service delivery. I think, from an organizational perspective, we also need to find ways for organizations to capture more of the value when they innovate in the NDIS at the moment. It just means that participants end up with unused funding in their plan that goes back to the NDIS. So, if I'm more efficient or more smart or more innovative, I don't get Um, I don't get any incentive to be any of those things because I don't get to keep the money for being better at what I do. That's right. Why invest in the systems and the networks to be a really great support coordinator if it just means that you'll only use five of your 20 hours of support coordination? Yeah. In fact, I'll lose money because I don't get to use all the hours.、Mm. Yep.、Uh, and then I guess the last thing that was a real blocker for innovation was around 
how organizations work together to come up with innovative yeah, things. So yeah. innovation is really expensive. A lot of the organizations we see as being really successful at DSC are um, niche on the ground, very specialist organizations, and they need to work together to be able to innovate. So we know more ways to bring finance together with a lot of small expert providers to be able to create innovative options. Did you catch that we at DSC? Yeah. One dollar plus. One plus. The sad part is that's an article from January in 2016, and it's all still totally relevant. You were going to rewrite it, weren't you? Yeah, I went to rewrite it last year, and I was like, oh, no, that's all still good. Yep. I'd I'd still point at all the same things. And then I'd point to the additional one we probably didn't see as much in January 2016, which is just the, um, the lack of bandwidth. That the organizations are already just the treading water, trying to transition, try to um, implement all the quality and safeguards, all that kind of stuff. So innovation seems to be a low priority, which it, which it is. That's it. So it was a pretty serious podcast. We I think we're just wrapping up. It was the true believer is certainly the, the correct theme. What do you do for fun, Luke? Uh, I need to do some really good switching off for fun because mm-hmm. I'm not very good at switching off. So uh, I need to do things where I just have no access to internet, phone, power. So I do a lot of multi-day hiking. So oh, cool. I find that a really good way to switch off, to be kind of out in the wilderness with your backpack, you know, with your dehydrated camp food uh, and uh, really immerse yourself in something that is not thinking about the NDIS, which I do <laughs> for the rest of my life when I'm not doing multi-day hikes. So um, thank you, Luke. Thank you for being our guest on our Candid Conversations podcast, but also thank you for being one of the founding members of DSC yeah. and being a, a model of, of how we currently operate. Thanks, Luke. No worries. It's such a privilege to come and reflect on what's been a great kind of four years, five years of working together. Thank you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by Disability Services Consulting that's produced by Maya Thomas. And we've been candidly conversing with Luke Bocher today, the CEO of the Summer Foundation and one of DC's founding members. If you want to learn a bit more about Summer, you can go to their website, summerfoundation.org.au, and they really do have some of the best resources in the sector, for particularly for those of you who are supporting people to live independently. And if you want to hear more from DSC, you can sign up to our newsletter. The link is in the show notes, or you can sign up at disabilityservicesconsulting.com.au.